Born a Strong Tower. It's good to see our family this morning. If you're a guest here this morning, we're glad you're with us as well. Glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, that's where we're going to be this morning, Mark chapter 13, or if you want to follow on the screen behind me. Uh, as you're turning there, if you didn't get a chance to fill out a connect card earlier during the service, we would love to connect with you. You can fill that out either by the card in front of you or you can uh, scan that QR code to fill it out on your phone. Uh, we would just love to be able to pray with you and, and uh, connect with you. Mark chapter 13, we're going to look at just verses 32 to 37. 32 to 37. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the way of vigilance, the way of vigilance. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this space that we can gather together and in your presence we can cry out and in your presence we can rejoice in your presence we can weep whatever it is lord here in your presence we come to know who you are and 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 who we are because knowing you we know ourselves and so we pray god that you would speak to us in your word today to help us know more and more your love for us and that our hearts will be turned to love you in return we pray in jesus name Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There was a man named William Miller who seemed like he would be uh, the un most unlikely candidate for a prophet of panic, if you want to call him that. He was uh, tending to a small rural farm in Vermont. He fought in the War of 1812. He was uh, serving as a justice of the peace. He, he had kind of a slow life. He had kind of a life that you would think nothing uh, special or exuberant, except his religious life was somewhat unstable. And so at, at uh, a young age, at, I think it was 1816, he uh, converted to Christianity. He put his faith in Jesus. And immediately after that, he became obsessed with biblical prophecy. And he started to read the Bible from cover to cover, trying to interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he started to try to put together all the pieces and the dates and the information and the details. And he became obsessed trying to calculate all these things. And so when he was studying and, and trying to do his calculations, he finally came to his conclusion. He picked the date of Jesus' return. It was going to be 1843. But... He didn't tell anybody. He, you know, he kept that to himself. That was kind of something he would pray about, something he would keep to himself. Until a few years later down the road, someone invited him to come preach, and he decided he was going to make it public. And so he preached, and he said, 
Jesus is coming back in 1843. And of course, people got excited. People wanted to hear more about this. And so he started to get invitations to this place and to the next place and the next place. And he started to preach and became somewhat of a local celebrity because of his message about him knowing the date of Jesus' return. And it's estimated that somewhere around 50,000 people were waiting on edge, believing his calculation. And it's estimated that somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of people were aware of his preaching, aware of this date that he had picked, and yet they were kind of looking at it from a distance. I mean, this, this was big news. It was very well known that he had said this. And so, as the date gets closer... People start asking for more uh, specifics, right? Can you give us something a little bit more? And so he said, I can't really give you any more than that, except it's going to be in this range. It's going to be from March 1843 to March 1844. And so they had this window. And when the window came and the window went, obviously people were disappointed. People had been selling their houses. People had been preparing their lives. People had had been, you know, getting everything ready because Jesus was coming back. Hundreds of thousands of people were believing the message. And so one of his followers uh, said, well, maybe we messed something up. And he goes back and they do some more calculations. And they said, maybe we're in a season of tarrying. It's going to be October 1844. And when October came and went, that's when all the followers left. Because people were disappointed, right? I mean, people thought this, this was it. How could we be so wrong? How could it be so clear and we not understand? In fact, historians would call it the great disappointment in church history. It's called the great disappointment. Because, right, it's, it's disappointing any time you miss the point. It's, you, you completely miss it. The church has long had a, a strange history with the second coming of Jesus. I mean, you can maybe put people in, in a oversimplified categories, but one category would be the zealous. The zealous are the people who've, who've read or, or they, they read the, the news with you know, one eye on their phone or their iPad or the actual newspaper and then another eye on the book of Revelation. Right? You're, you're trying to interpret the images in the book of Revelation with the, the dates and the details of what's happening on Fox News or CNN or whatever your news channel is. And so you're, you're trying to interpret the times like that. Or you're the person who's, who's read all 75 left-behind books. I don't know how many there are, but there, there's so many of those left-behind books. I mean, you're, the zealous are the people who can draw the charts, you know, with the dragons and the helicopters. And, and you know, you can pick all the dates and they're, they're arguing over the millennium and the tribulation. And when Jesus is coming back, is it pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're not missing much. It's all right. There's a lot of information out there and a lot of charts. But the zealous, the zealous believe that the second coming of Jesus is all about breaking the codes. How do I tell the future? How, how do I make sure I, I've got all of my ducks in a row and I can tell what's happening right now and what God is going to do in the future? But on the opposite side, you've got the callous. And the callous think that Jesus' second coming is just irrelevant. It's even silly. Right? It's... We laugh at the people who are obsessed with prophecies. We mock 
the charts and the dates and the people who make estimations about things and connections to what's happening on the news. And, and they start asking the question, what does that have to do with my life that Jesus is coming back? Right? I, I'm concerned about trying to raise these wild kids who live in my house. I'm concerned about how I'm going to actually have a prayer life when I'm so busy I can't do anything else. I'm concerned about how am I going to get out of this debt that I'm in credit card debt. right? Or, or I'm, I'm concerned about how am I going to save this marriage that seems like it's just stale and lifeless. What does Jesus' second coming have to do with anything? And so you got the callous who think that it's irrelevant, it's silly. But what if Jesus' return is less about the future and more about the present? Because Jesus says it is. Jesus says this is what the focus is supposed to be. And so we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're calling it The Way. And the Gospel of Mark is, is a life account of Jesus' life, right? And we're coming now to the end of Jesus' life. And we're in chapter 13 of Mark, which some scholars say is the hardest chapter in Mark to interpret. And then other scholars would go even further and say Mark 13 is one of the hardest chapters in the entire Bible to interpret. I mean, so this, this should be fun, right? I mean, this is so confusing. You wonder why people argue about this and disagree about this and come up with detailed charts to try to organize it because Jesus says a lot of confusing things in this chapter. Jesus says a lot of mysterious things that don't have a lot of clarity until you get to the end of the chapter. And when you get to the end of the chapter, after Jesus says all these strange and mysterious things, now he says what all of it means. And so he points us right to the purpose of the chapter at the end, and he says it's about this. It's about spiritual vigilance. Spiritual vigilance. So the question I want to ask today as we look at just the end of the chapter is how do we, or how does Jesus' second coming help us to have spiritual uh, vigilance? That's what I want to look at today. So the first thing we got to look at is the need to keep watch, to keep watch. If you're taking notes this morning, number one is keeping watch. Look at verse 32, what Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Now pause right there for a second. The day or the hour that Jesus is talking about is referring back to verse 26 when Jesus starts talking about his second coming. He says the Son of Man is going to come, right? So now he says the, the day or the hour of when that's going to happen is unknown. He, he says right off the bat, no one knows except the Father. The only person who knows is God the Father. And then he makes it clear. He says, not even the angels in heaven. And then strangely, Jesus says, not even the Son of God knows. How the, we got to pause there for a second. How in the world is Jesus God, yet he doesn't know when he's coming? This is the mystery of the incarnation. We're not going to pause too long here, but the incarnation is the doctrine that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. John Calvin, when he's commenting on this passage, he says this. He says, For we know that in Christ the two natures were united into one person in such a manner that each retained its own properties. That means that they're both God, or they're both God and man. It's, it's both properties are retained. And more especially, the divine nature was in a state of being concealed 
and did not at all exert itself. Now, what's he saying there? Calvin is saying that there's no contradiction between saying, like John 21, right? John 21 says that Jesus knew all things. But then you go to Luke chapter 2, and it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Now, how is that? Calvin is saying there's no contradiction in that because he is both fully God and fully man at the same time. And so when he's fully God, he's true God who takes on a true body. And when he takes on a true body, he has true limitations. True limitations. That means Jesus grieves like us. That means Jesus became afraid like us. That means Jesus had to mysteriously learn like us. How does that happen? We don't fully grasp it, but this is is all I'm going to have time to say. But, But what I'm saying, though, is there's no contradiction in the fact that Jesus somehow, some mysterious way, doesn't know what's going to happen here. And although it's interesting to explore the the theological nuances of Jesus' two natures, this wasn't his intention. What Jesus is doing on this, this account here, what he's doing is making a passing comment on the way to his point. Though his point in the passage is this, no one knows. The point is, you shouldn't be making charts and dates and you know, calculations because no one knows the time. And therefore... Be on guard. Keep awake. These two words are fascinating to me. Be on guard is is this word that that literally means keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. And then the second word where he says keep awake is this idea of, you could translate it, losing sleep. Losing sleep, right? So the two things together, you keep your eyes open and keep them open long enough that you're going to lose sleep over this. Lose sleep over what? what? What am I staying awake for? What am I on guard for? What am I, what am I doing here? You've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 5 when Jesus begins with a warning to the disciples to say, don't let anyone lead you astray from God. Don't let anyone lead you astray. He says it three times to be on guard. Verse 9, verse 23, verse 33. Jesus is trying to grab their attention to say, the point of this whole discussion is that you have to examine your life. Examine your life because I'm coming. I'm coming. See, Jesus is coming is a call to keep watch over our life. To keep watch. Listen, to to keep watch over our life implies a sense of urgency and a sense of humility. Urgency because there's a threat coming our way. Right? You, you can divide it up as external threats and internal threats. External threats, there's so many of them. Right, It might be suffering in your life. It might be pain in your life. It might be confusion in your life. Right, But one of them I want to zero in real quick is, I don't know if you realize this, we live in a post-Christian culture. Right, We, we live in a culture that no longer assumes that God's word is true. What's true is what I think and what I feel. And so truth is more, more or less a question, right? What, what is truth, as, as you know, as in the scriptures? What, what is truth? Truth becomes, in, the, in our culture today, truth without a standard becomes just a, a question of whatever I feel. Truth becomes whatever I want to do with my body. Truth becomes whatever I want, uh, or whatever way I want to make more money. Truth becomes whatever my news channel tells me to believe, right? 
Truth becomes just whatever my community, my, my little group of people who think the same, believe the same, uh, you know, look the same, whatever they say, that is my truth. And it brings a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion. And listen, what Jesus is saying is all the external threats out there, he says, be on guard. But listen, even more important than that, all those external threats, the internal threats are often even greater. Because here's what Jesus says later, or earlier actually, he says what comes out of a person is what defiles them. What Jesus is saying is, you can be concerned, you can be on guard about the culture, about the things that are coming into your life, coming your direction, but listen, what you should be more concerned about is what's coming out of your life. Because what defiles a person is what's in them. It's in our own hearts. And so we're often more defeated by what's happening in us than what's happening outside of us. You hear that? And so how do, you, how do you actually keep watch over your own life? How do, you, how do you guard your own heart? First, it's going to take work. It's going to take work. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Or in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The springs of life, right? What, what, what it's saying here is, is the work of keeping watch over our own heart is, is going to be vigilant work. It's going to be tiring work. It's going to be exhausting work. It's going to be consistent work. It's going to be work that makes you lose sleep, as Jesus says. But it's worthy work. It's worthy work. Why? Just as Proverbs says, the work of, of caring for your heart, being vigilant over your heart, is worthy because your heart is, is the river that flows into every area of your life. Every area of your life. Every nook and cranny, every, every corner and crevice of your character and your conduct comes from what's happening in your own heart. But here's the challenge, and I think this is particularly the challenge in this cultural moment of our church is, is it's so easy to focus on all the problems out there and not focus on the problem in us. It's easier to, to let the, the attention-grabbing uh, headlines of the news channel grab all your attention and grab all your emotion and all your passion and all your heart and you don't focus on what's happening in me. What's happening in my own heart? Right? When was the last time you slowed down long enough to say, I need, I need to examine my heart? Right? When was the last time you slowed down long enough and, and took an evaluation of all the internal threats in me? The, the gossip in me, the, the bitterness, the despair, the prejudice, the, the fear, the unbelief, whatever's in me, I need to slow down and realize what, what's actually happening in my heart. But what's actually going on inside of my soul? I mean, when was the last time you slowed down for that? Jesus is calling us. Listen, Jesus is calling us to open our eyes and keep them awake long enough that you might even lose some sleep. But listen, what happens if we don't keep watch? Let's look at the danger of falling asleep. This is the second point, falling asleep. Look at verse 34. 
Jesus goes on to say this, It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, Jesus gives us a little mini parable. Like, it's one verse, that's it. Just a little mini parable to explain what he's talking about. And if you can imagine for a moment, he says there's this, this person who, who owns a, a large property, an estate probably, and uh, they go on a long journey away. We're not told what's going on or why they're away, but they go away for a long journey. And when they leave, they leave behind their servants to be in charge of the estate. And he says that each of the, servant, or each of the servants have their own work to do, but then he zeroes in on one of them, the doorkeeper. He says the doorkeeper has one job, stay awake. That's it. You you as the doorkeeper, you have one job, stay awake. Because if the doorkeeper falls asleep, then there's going to be danger that could come towards the house. And everyone now is vulnerable. Everyone's in danger if the doorkeeper falls asleep. And so the doorkeeper has one job, stay awake. Stay awake so you can protect and warn if anybody's coming this way. And so... Jesus is saying, we are doorkeepers with one job, stay awake. But look, he goes on in verse 35, look at what he says. Therefore, stay awake, listen, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Right, again, Jesus right here, he says it for the third time, you don't know when. He's making that a big point, a big emphasis here. You don't know when. Jesus, the master of the house, the master of the house in your own heart, he could come at any moment. He could come in the middle of the night, he says. He'd come in the middle of the day. He'd come in the middle of the morning. He can come when you're least expecting it. He's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. And when he comes, how will he find your heart? How will he find your heart? Right? If he finds us asleep, it won't be good. And so this begs the question, why, why would any doorkeeper fall asleep? Why, why does any doorkeeper fall asleep? It's real simple, because the doorkeeper thinks they know. They think they know. Jesus has said it three times, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. And the doorkeeper, just like us, we think we know. We think we know when we're going to meet our maker, and we don't know. We don't know, right? We think we know. Even if Jesus said we don't, I'll just rest a little bit. I'll I'll take care of that in a little bit. This is what happens. Listen, we fall asleep spiritually through indifference. Indifference. Years ago on a a major news network, they, they told the story of a homeowner named Jerry Lynn, and uh, Jerry Lynn and his family, they were trying to hang a TV in their house on the wall, right? They're trying to hang this TV on the wall, and they got to drill a hole in the wall, but they didn't know exactly where to drill the wall or drill the hole in the wall. And so uh, he came up with this brilliant idea. I'm not saying it's a great idea, but it's his idea. He decided he's going to tie an alarm clock on a string and get up above an air vent and drop the alarm clock down the wall into the spot where uh, you know, the TV's supposed to go. And, and when the alarm clock goes off in 10 minutes, it will, he, he'll be able to hear it through the wall and he'll know where to put the hole. That was his idea, right? Well, he gets up in the air vent, he drops the alarm clock on the string down the wall, and lo and behold, the string breaks, the alarm clock falls and gets stuck in the wall. 
And then 10 minutes later, the alarm goes off. And every night at 7.50 p.m., the alarm went off for 13 years. 13 years, they left the alarm clock in. They, they, they thought the batteries were going to die at some point. Apparently, those were really good batteries for 13 years. And then finally, 13 years later, they did some renovations in the house. And so they, while they were doing some renovations, they went into the wall, took the alarm clock out. And instead of throwing it away, they put it up on their mantle in the fireplace and left it set at 7.50 p.m. so it would continue to go off. And they told the reporters, they said, yeah, we just kind of grew accustomed to it. At first it was annoying, but now it's just kind of cute. It's just kind of cute. The alarm was no longer alarming. It was just kind of cute. That, that's the spirit of indifference. That, that's the spirit of indifference. That indifference is when the alarm no longer becomes alarming. It's just noise in the background, and it's kind of even a little cute. It, it's not important. It's not urgent, right? And let me tell you, indifference is really hard in our information age because there's so much information coming our way. So much information. I was Googling just a little bit this week and looked up some stats. Listen to this. I don't know if they're true, but I'm going to give them to you anyways. There are over, according to Google... 1.2 billion websites. I don't know where they get that number. 1.2 billion websites. I also found it, about a million books are published annually. A million. Most Americans are exposed to over 4,000 ads daily. That's what they say in the marketing industry. 4,000 ads. All the logos you're seeing, all the ads you're seeing, all the just driving down the highway, you see so many ads, right? 4,000 a day. I mean, it makes sense why uh, research has shown now our attention span is down to about eight seconds. Famously, someone who did a research project, they, they said that that's one second less than a goldfish. Eight seconds. Eight seconds. I mean, all that information just coming at us over and over, all day, every day, that's what makes us indifferent. So then when Jesus stands up and he says, I'm coming, be ready. All right, I'm, I'm still scrolling. He says, be on guard. Keep your eyes awake. You know, I'll, I'll get to that later. I'm watching this video right now. Like, you know, or, Keep watch over your heart. Have you seen my to-do list? I mean, think about what, if you're falling asleep spiritually, ask yourself, have I slipped into a spiritual slumber? I think so many of us, myself included, we, we just think we have so much time. We think we have so much time, right? We say things like, I'll get to that when I get through this busy season at work. But it's always a busy season at work. Or we say things like, I'll get to that when, uh, you know, my, my kids are a little bit older. Right now we're in the season where it's just about our kids and we, we got to focus on that. Well, let me tell you, it doesn't get easier. Or, or, or we say things like, when, when ministry slows down, I'll really focus on my heart and on the state of my soul. And I'll really focus on my own relationship with God when ministry slows down. But it never slows down. There's always more to do. The doorkeeper always has one primary job, though. Stay awake. 
stay awake. Listen to me. The most important thing in your life is to stay spiritually awake. It's the most important thing. You have one job, Jesus says. One job. And out of that flow all your other jobs. You have one job. It's more important than the kids' sports and activities. It's more important than the promotion at your job. It's more important than the expectations of your family and your friends. It's more important than whatever else is on the list. Jesus is saying, stay awake. Listen, this is why we need community. When we talk about community around our church, we're not saying that just so you can uh, you know, have a good time on Tuesday night with your friends. Like, this is why you need community. It's because we want people in your life to, who, when you're not doing well spiritually, you, you need to borrow their faith, right? You, you, as someone who's exhausted and tired, and you're saying, you know what, I'm spiritually in a slumber right now. I need someone who's awake in my life, who can say to me, wake up, who can encourage me, who can strengthen me, who can pray for me, who can push me towards Jesus, who can say, I know you're tired right now. I know you're about to fall asleep at your post, but listen, Jesus is worth it. That's why you need community. That's why you need your connect group. That, that's why you need to be in church. God designed the church for it to be a community of people who are constantly encouraging each other to stay awake. To stay awake. We're a room full of doorkeepers. That's what Jesus is saying. We're a room full of doorkeepers who can encourage each other to stay awake. But what if you find yourself still falling asleep? This is the last point, staying awake. Staying awake. Look at verse 37. Jesus finishes this section. He says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I mean, Jesus makes it crystal clear now to his disciples, right? This is multiple times he keeps saying the same thing in just a few verses. And now he tells the disciples, I want to make it crystal clear. It's not just for you. It's for everybody. If it wasn't clear already, this is for every single person. Stay awake. Now, what's fascinating about this word is it's a little bit different nuance, a slightly different nuance than earlier, right? In verse, uh, what was it? Verse 33, the word translated keep awake. Keep awake has this emphasis, like I said, about losing sleep. It's this sense you're staying up so long, you're, you're losing sleep. But here it's a different word that Jesus uses in verse 37. And that's why the translators translate it slightly different. They say, stay awake. And the word here has more of a meaning emphasizing coming out of sleep. So it's often used to say kind of coming alert when you weren't alert. And sometimes in the New Testament, it's even translated coming alive out of death. Right, so it's this sense of someone who's already asleep, somebody who's already slumbering, now coming awake, coming alive the way they should have been. Mark is setting the scene here, right? Mark is setting the scene for just in a few days, Jesus and the disciples are going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you know the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's getting ready to, to face his final hours on the cross, and Jesus is starting to feel the pressure. Jesus is starting to feel the weight of our sin. He's starting to feel the weight of our shame. And, 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 and it's this sense of it's so much pressure on him. Literally, Jesus is, is sweating blood. He's so overwhelmed. And so as Jesus feels this coming towards him, he says to his disciples in Mark chapter 14, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here 
and watch. It's the same word. Remain here and watch. And now Jesus goes off and he prays and, and uh, he's, he's calling out to his heavenly father. And, and then he goes back to the disciples after telling them to watch. And what does he find? He finds them sleeping. He finds them passed out. They're sleeping. And, and so he, he looks at them and he's like, what's going on here? And they wake up and then Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to go pray again. And so he goes and he prays again. He goes off and he prays by himself. And then he comes back to the disciples. And what does he find? They're sleeping again. And this time he's like, look, what, what are we doing here? He says to Peter, he says, could you not watch one hour? And then he goes away. And Jesus prays for a third time, and he comes back, and how does he find the disciples? Sleeping again. And what's amazing is Mark, Mark paints this beautiful picture. He says they, they just had no excuse. They didn't even know what to say. Right? Here's the reason. Not only did they not have any excuse, they had no power. They had no ability Right? Jesus knew the answer to his own question. Jesus knew when he asked the question, can you not watch for one hour? He knew the answer was a resounding no. No, you can't watch. You, you don't have the ability to watch over your own life. You don't have the ability to watch and keep guard over your own life. You don't have the ability to, to do what God has called you to do. It's a resounding no. Here's the inherent problem with keeping watch over our own life. The, the keeper and the threat are the same person. The one who's supposed to be on guard and the threat are the same person. It's me. And what happens is the, the greater keeping I need, the greater guarding I need is because I have a greater threat in my life. And so it's constantly at battle. It's constantly, as Jesus says in that text, he says the flesh or, or the spirit is desiring, it's willing, but the flesh is weak. The, there's an enemy within me that doesn't allow me to keep myself, to guard myself. And so the way to stay awake is actually to confess that you can't. It's to turn to the one who kept watch over us. That's repentance. See, to stay awake requires repentance. It's repentance. See, Jesus is the true and better doorkeeper. He kept perfect watch over his own life. He kept watch over his kindness. He kept watch over his truth. He kept watch over his patience. He kept watch over his mercy. He kept watch over his justice. He kept watch over every area of his life in every way, and yet he knew what the ultimate keeping of his life would cost him. And so as he prayed that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he famously prayed, right? He said, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, yours be done, right? He knew that keeping his life would ultimately cost him losing his life. But for Jesus to keep us, he would have to endure the cross. He must endure the guilt of our sin. He must endure the shame of all our failures. He must endure the death we all deserve. And so the God who never sleeps or slumbers, he slept for three days in the grave. He slept to make us sleepers come alive. He died to make the dead come alive. Now, ascended on the throne where he ever lives to make intercession, Jesus is keeping watch. He's keeping watch right now. He keeps watch over us while we despair. He keeps watch while we betray. He keeps watch while we go to sleep. And so we can only keep watch because he kept watch. 
we can only keep watch because he watches over us as our keeper. And so we turn to Jesus. That's repentance. How, how do you stay awake? It's repentance. How do you fall asleep? It's indifference. Right? Repentance is two steps. Number one, you have to confess, I can't stay awake on my own. I can't watch over my life. I am my own worst enemy. I can't be on guard against myself. I, I can't change myself, transform myself. I need Jesus to come into my life to watch over me. And so you put your trust in him, the one who perfectly watches, the one who perfectly keeps us. That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It's to say, I can't, but he did and he can. And because he did, he gives me the power. He gives me the ability because his spirit now lives in me. I have victory to watch. I have victory to keep because of him. That's what it means to put your trust in him. And so when Jesus says, I'm coming, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming suddenly, we need to keep watch. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer, that you would come. And that when you come, you would find your bride with well-kept hearts. Not because we have the answers, not because we have the abilities, not because somehow we've disciplined ourselves into obedience. But Lord, we've done the hard work of repentance. We've done the, the vigilant work of continually over and over taking our sin to you, taking our worries to you, taking our anxieties, our fears, our unbelief, our arrogance, our greed, our, our bitterness, whatever it is that we find as we honestly examine our lives, we take it to you and you keep us. The Lord is our keeper. And so Lord, we give you praise for that. We pray that your, your church, this church, would be on guard and that we would look ahead to the glorious day when you come for us, when you come for a bride without spot or wrinkle because you've washed us in your blood. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name.